When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only excludes Alaska and Hawaii. All right, it's film study again. Uh, this is the fun one. We get to talk about the offense. Even though this week the defense was fun to talk about. Ken McCusick, how, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? All good. It's uh, World Series is here, and I get to root for the Astros. Yeah, that would be the way I'd go, too, with uh, the Nationals in their ultimate death struggle with the Orioles for this market. Right, right. And you know what? Our guest today uh, probably knows how a lot of Baltimore people so Tim Barbalay is the producer of the Vinny and Haney show and co-host of Baltimore Game Day Uncensored postgame show, both over on 105.7 The Fan. Tim, how you doing? I'm doing fine, Josh. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Now, now, clearly right now you're getting mostly calls about the Ravens, and, and you're trying to steer the shows geared towards football. But you've got to talk about the World Series, and you've got to talk about playoffs. How is Baltimore handling the Nationals being in the, in the World Series? <laughs> That's a very good question. As I'm watching it, the Nets just took the lead three to two um, over the Astros in game one. But there's definitely some I think a lot of people are just relieved that the Yankees ended up getting bounced uh, when Jose Altuve hit that walk off in game six off Chapman. I think everyone's happy that the Yankees aren't in it, but I'm with you. I think a lot of Baltimore is pulling for the Astros instead of having the Nets. And take I, their uh, first series. And Ken, I did get feedback after last week. I did learn there are Raven, there are Raven fans out there that are also national fans. Makes no sense yeah, to me, you. but they're out there. <laughs> your your theory it is an interesting combo. It's an ugly combo. <laughs> but anyway, we're not here to talk baseball. There's plenty of places to talk baseball, but let's get into the Ravens game, especially a big uh, statement game like this on Sunday. Ken Hughesick, let's get into it. Yeah, well, life's good. Uh, Tim, we're, we're thrilled to have you on here. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, it's a little bit of a weird game for the Ravens. They, they, for the first time this year, they lost the snap count, 68 to 56 in this. They also lost, lost, I put in air quotes, 
two drives offensively to defensive touchdowns. Yeah, I, I mean, it was a very interesting game. And just kind of talking with Brent during the postgame show Sunday, it, you know, this had this, the feel of the Kansas City game entering week three with a lot of hype into it. Obviously, you're going into a very hostile environment. But during this entire game, it had a different feel in the fact where the Ravens just always seemed like they were chasing during the Kansas City game. And Harbaugh was very aggressive going for it on fourth down, going for the two-point conversion early on. But they they seemed calm and level-headed throughout this Seahawks game. They always seemed like they were in the game. And, you know, from the first drive, they had that deep pass to uh, Miles Boykin, the 50-yarder there, and were able to get points on the opening drive, go up three to nothing. They ended up uh, having their similar struggles, not finishing drives in the first half, uh, stalling inside the red zone, inside the Seattle 10-yard line, twice settling for field goals. But the pick six by Marcus Peters, the 67-yard pick six, that was Russell Wilson's first interception of the year. That ended up really swinging the momentum in their favor. And you mentioned the discrepancy for snaps. And I think a lot of that had to do with Seattle – effective early on they were eight for their eight for their first 11 attempts on third down so they were able to keep drives going and that kind of played into it and as you said two defensive scores that played into it as well yeah 10 to 17 on third down for the game obviously not what the Ravens want to do that did have a lot to do with that snap count change the Ravens had difficulty getting off the field they got three and out at a couple times themselves in the game uh, so it wasn't perfect by any means, but uh, but they got it done. And the similarity of that fourth quarter drive they put together uh, drove effectively the length of the field to get a field goal both times uh, and put the game away. I, I thought there going up twenty three to thirteen uh, before the the fumble and return by Humphrey re- removed all doubt. But uh, definitely a uh, very similar feeling to that Bengals game in terms of how they ended up putting it away, and it's a good one. And I'm glad you pointed that out because I tweeted this out right when the drive was happening. I was saying to Brent, it was deja vu of the week before because uh, I have it up right now. 18-play, 83-yard field goal drive against Cincinnati. It took up 9 minutes, 46 seconds. That ended up to that point being the longest drive in the season uh, in the NFL. And that took place in the fourth quarter this week. 13-play, 86-yard field goal drive, taking up nine minutes in the fourth quarter. And then they went up by two scores with under four minutes to go. So it effectively kind of put the game on ice. Yeah, it was great to be able to see them with all those rushing first downs. And again, the Bengals game, the Bengals knew exactly what was coming on that drive. And they rushed for six first downs on that drive. And just looking through this here, it looks like they ran for one, two, three, Looks like maybe three first downs only on that drive, but still impressive in terms of they knew what was coming and they, they moved the ball down the field. Also very sloppy conditions. And uh, oh, you know, yeah. you, we saw a little bit of that for the for Jackson, certainly having trouble keeping his footing. I'm sure it was giving the defenders some trouble, too, which probably means that it's, it's going to help the offense a little bit. But the running backs in particular for the Ravens had a lot of trouble cutting and getting to some of the nice holes the offensive line was creating. No, I'm with you. And Lamar, who's typically very reserved during his uh, press conferences, he even said, look, the turf sucked. <laughs> he had to change his cleats three times, they said, during the television broadcast. And you mentioned uh, the running backs not necessarily getting a ton of uh, involvement, especially on the outside. I mean, Mark Ingram, he averaged less than four yards a carry, and he averages 4.7 yards per carry on the uh, year Gus Edwards he had some success but kind of more in between the tackles some tough yardage plays but someone that I'd like to see more involved he didn't end up getting any carries is Justice Hill I mean that's the guy that John Harbaugh was clamoring about all offseason saying he wanted that home run hitting running back and that's what Justice Hill is he ended up getting a decent amount of touches against the Bengals but really was kind of a non-factor against Seattle yeah, his underutilization so far, I think, has been a real story. I had it for planned for later to talk about, but we can we can just dump it in right now. Is that I think he might be a guy they go to against the Patriots. I mean, it's a layered scheme guy where the Patriots have not seen much of Justice Hill at all in terms of how he might be used. He's a a great guy to get out, obviously in space if the weather conditions are good, and in particular if the uh, Patriots do what I expect and kind of force Jackson to make it with his arm in this game. 
then I think Justice Hill will be one of the big weapons that that uh, that could be used. They really need Marquise Brown back, but but Justice Hill, you know, underneath could be a could be a terrific weapon. Yeah, uh, he's, he can. he's got 18 carries so far this year for the whole year at seven games. And seven games, that's a little over two. But uh, again, like you said, and right when they drafted Justice Hill at Okie State back in April, you know, obviously they drafted Marquise Brown the same draft, but I kept saying to people, imagine Lamar on the field, Marquise Brown on the field, Justice Hill on the field. I mean, that's a ton of explosiveness and speed for a defense to account to. And I just feel like Greg Roman can really get creative in some, you know, schemes to really make that work. Yeah, he certainly has. And that's been Roman over 14 games now has layered in new scheme every single week. I've never been able to see an offensive coordinator sustain that. And obviously when you have a running attack, it requires more creativity because you don't really have that extra dimension to get the ball out of the backfield to a different spot in space. Uh, and, and so it requires more creativity to determine how you're going to pull your linemen and, and, and whatnot. And the Ravens are doing all sorts of stuff, and they seem to be loving all the misdirection that has gone with it. You know, they had, I think they might have had two bash concepts with a, a left tackle and a left guard pulling the last one each the last two weeks. And it might have been both times they went the opposite direction with the run. So it's been it's been very fun to see that kind of stuff and see yeah. other other teams uh, falling for it. They did some wonderful uh Trap blocking on Clowney in this game, including hitting him directly in the side of the rib cage, which is normally done by a running back, you know, in, in, in terms of a chip block when you see it. But it was done by Bozeman pulling across the formation to hammer him. So I'm just loving that assortment of creativity we're seeing from Roman in terms of, of how he's dealing with some of the star players on the other side. Yeah, and that's kind of what we were expecting, you know, from Greg Roman coming over. I mean, obviously from his concepts going from the San Francisco 49ers and everyone pointed out, look, he dealt with Colin Kaepernick, he dealt with Tyrod Taylor, and, you know, they mentioned this revolutionary offense, you know, for a while, and obviously all these new schemes, and, you know, a guy like Bradley Bozeman, like you were talking about, Ken, I mean, this is a guy that entering training camp, maybe back when Alex Lewis, Jermaine Illuminar were on the team, maybe he was more of a fringe guy, not a surefire lock for the 53-man roster. And lo and behold, he started all seven games so far at left guard and will for the foreseeable future. And, you know, for an offensive line that's been, I don't want to call much maligned, but there were questions entering the year for this unit. I mean, they're number one rushing attack in the NFL, averaging over 200 yards a game. And they've held their own, you know, pass blocking. They had their struggles, obviously, against the Steelers, where they gave up five sacks, but they've kind of calmed it down over the past couple weeks. I mean, just gave up the one sack to the Bengals and one sack to Seattle, and that was when Lamar Jackson fell down. Right, so 17 sacks in seven games, and, and a lot of that, frankly, is Jackson holding the ball extra long and doing some things he doesn't need to do in the pocket. There's still some extra motion there that creates sacks. So, uh, you know, one time he turned the wrong way in a clean yeah. pocket. Another time he left a clean pocket. So we've seen various things. Obviously, the play on the edge where he got sacked in this game was not really a sack. It was a no. kind of a busted running play. Yep. So they really have been probably the best pass blocking unit in the entire league, but certainly in the top three. But why don't we take a moment now to go through the scoring on the offensive line? Because we finished that up last night. And I know people like to hear that this time of the show. So we'll go through one at a time, and I'll give you a chance to kind of chime in on everyone, Tim, as we go through it. So we'll start with uh, Ronnie Stanley, and and Stanley is having a very consistent year, clearly. Uh, Most people are calling for him to make the Pro Bowl. And uh, just to tell you, grades so far for the year, D-plus in that first game when he had two holding calls, and then A-A-A, B-plus, B-B. This last game, he had two pressures he allowed. One of those was to Clowney by a bull rush. One of them was to Clowney on a swim move. A lot of penetration also inside to Clowney on a swim move. That was very early on in the game. Those were his only negative scores, but because the Ravens only had 53 scored snaps, and I take out the Neals from their 56 in total, so that's why they're down to 53, uh, it's not a very forgiving level of snaps. So you make a few mistakes, and, you, and, you, and you're not looking as good in the scoring. So uh, I scored him at .83, made an adjustment of .06, which brings him up into the B range. I'm sorry, .77, which with an adjustment of .06 brings him up into the B range. Uh, three level two blocks. One thing we keep seeing from Stanley week after week is a lot of mobility, a lot of ability to get into the second level two and make a play even on the backside of a running play. And that's something he was on the backside of run plays a lot this week. 
Yeah, and Ronnie Stanley, uh, you know, he's been very steady, very consistent ever since they took him with the sixth overall pick in 2016. But he was looking to take the next level. He's been talking about that all offseason. And, you know, he's been praised uh, a lot throughout this year. I mean, pro football focus, I'm not sure how you feel about them, Ken. But, I mean, he's been, you know, one of their highest graded uh, left tackles all season. Definitely uh, one of the higher uh, pass blocking left tackles. And this is a guy that's playing for a contract. He's entering his fifth-year option next year in 2020, set to make close to $13 million a year. And, you know, it's it's got to be big uh, for the Ravens, you know, getting this increased uh, production out of Stanley because, look, you have what you hope to be your franchise quarterback in Lamar Jackson. And if you can nail down your franchise left tackle, which it looks like they have, that's a good uh, one-two punch right there to have both young 25 and under. Yeah, it, it sure is. And they're not really paying much for their offense right now at all. Obviously, no. having a quarterback in the first contract is key, but... Well, Yonda is really the only big contract. After that, it's Boyle and Hurst are the are the next two biggest, I believe. I'm not sure exactly where Ronnie Stanley fits into that, but he's get he'll, with his fifth year option, he'll clearly be in the top five. Yep. Uh, you know. Anyway, uh, moving on. Bozeman is the guy, and you mentioned him earlier, but I kind of think he saved his bacon with this game. So the last four games prior to this, he had F B minus D D. You're you're playing Seattle. Then there's a bye week. That would have been very ominous, frankly, with the recent performance of Bozeman, given the opportunity to switch at the bye week, possibly give the job to Powers. We don't, we were not, we're not watching practice. We're not privy to practice at this point. But even Makari, who's active every week, might have been a guy they would go to to try. So we really don't know what the Ravens are thinking behind the scenes. But Bozeman certainly needed a good game, I think, himself. And he got it. So uh, he made 49 of 53 blocks. He allowed 1.5 pressures. That's actually fairly minimal. But here's the big number. 13 out of 14 successful pulls in this game. And he'd been good all year in that, but he had a bad game previously. And uh, 13 out of 14 really turned the page. It was kind of a wet field. He had some trouble. He had made a couple of them in the backfield, which is not completely optimal. Uh, the one he missed, he was he was obstructed on the play, but you know he didn't have any negative events on those, and and those are high value blocks generally speaking. So you know he's trying to open one side of a hole on that right side for the power run game, and uh, and doing a great job. Anyway, A for Bozeman, his highest grade of the, of the season. Uh, he had some good marks last year in 230 snaps, so it wasn't a complete unknown quantity for the Ravens. But it's great for him to turn it around in a game like this. And I think, as you said earlier, I don't think his job is now in danger for at least the next couple of weeks. Yeah, gain some momentum heading into the bye week, and then obviously he's going to go against some, uh, you know, complex schemes against the New England Patriots in a few weeks. But, uh, you know, this is a guy like like we were saying earlier. He kind of got this uh, starting position out of circumstance. You know, they trade away Lewis, trade away Jermaine Illuminor, and. I mean, I don't know if anyone expected him to come in and be a rock star. Definitely not entering his second year, but you know, he was a six-round pick, but. Uh, from 2018, but I think he's held his own, something that Vinny's always been saying uh, this year, definitely performed a lot better as a uh, run blocker as opposed to a pass blocker. Do you see that similarly? Or? Uh, okay, so so far on the season, I've got him for 3.67 sacks. A sack in each of the three previous games was one of the big problems, and, and he was getting beat on stunts very regularly. Mm-hmm. So I think that is something we'll see from Belichick and Roman. Will, we need to figure out how to counter that in this game is figuring on these tackle end stunts and Bozeman being good on the handoff, which he's been and bad in terms of being, being too slow to get back to the middle of the field uh, and, and protect that B gap. Sorry, that a gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so see, that's where, that's where he keeps getting beat on the, on the stunts. So anyway, I'm, I'm hopeful that that he can get back there, and I, I think I would agree with Vinny. Yeah, he's he's had pro- his problems have been primarily as a pass blocker and not as a run blocker. Okay, good run, but a good pass blocking game though in this one, uh, yeah. definitely. So, all right, let's move on. Matt Skura, much maligned uh, in this thing. This is one of the thing I, I hate. And occasionally, we talk about this on the show, but we'll bring it up one more time because hey, you're new, uh, <laughs> Matt. Matt uh, people tend to be very polar about offensive linemen. The guy either is the greatest ever or he completely sucks. And usually if he completely <laughs> sucks, he's always roller skated back into the quarterback and whatnot. Yep. And, and anchoring can be a problem for Skur, and, and it was in this game against Al Woods, who's a massive nose tackle for Seattle. But, uh, you know, he's he's been a 
decided upgrade this year from his play last year where he was I think he had about a C minus season last year I would have said coming into this game he was averaging right around a C plus D plus in this game I I marked him down for a couple of things first of all he had a pressure and a half he gave up a penetration Uh, that was a very fast one to Woods uh, for I think a loss of three on the play was it was fairly late Uh, .79 which for a center is not particularly good it's a D plus Normally, he would get an adjustment for the quality of competition, but I had to take that away. And, and that there were two plays that bothered me that, that made me do that. And that's an adjustment for, for plays that are outside the normal scope of the scoring mechanism. Is He had a bad shotgun snap that was high and outside, and that was a, that was a play that Jackson fumbled. And then Ingram picked it up and ran six yards with it, which was fortunate. But, but still, that fumble put the Ravens in some jeopardy right there. And then the other play was the uh, um, the delay of game where you know crowd noise was there but Jackson was screaming for the football obviously and and he didn't deliver it uh awareness of the of the clock there was not good yeah that was uh, one of the more interesting moments of the game to be honest and we'll talk more about Lamar later on but you know that was definitely one of the more animated and demonstrative you know we've seen Lamar Jackson spikes the ball and I mean, yeah, it's definitely a rough look, and obviously Skur has kind of made an example there. But, I I mean, like like you said, Ken, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, everyone was kind of really concerned about Skur entering 2019, coming off 18, coming off, you know, the rough playoff game and whatnot. But I feel like we haven't mentioned him a ton this year, and not to say that that's good or bad. Well, probably more good than bad. You know, it's not like he's been – the, the issue across the offensive line. So I guess, you know, as long as he can keep a steady performance, you, you're fine with that. Yeah. I mean, it they're, they're the running the ball here. extremely well and they're, and they, they really don't have issues as pass blocking unit either. So Skura has to get credit for that because a yeah. lot of those double teams, they start in the middle and they end up with a combination block being either made by him or by the neck guy next to him, depending on who gets booted off. And you know, I, I He's he plays a big role in that, even if he doesn't, quote unquote, win the block. And you mentioned PFF earlier, but this is one of my complaints about their scoring system is that I don't think they recognize the back end of a double team as being as valuable as it is. Okay, And that's where that's where, uh, you know, they would probably refer to most of those cases as stale blocks where they give a zero score for it. But it's actually worth more than that when you look at it in the run game. So with that, I don't like to get into PFF too much because we, we go down a little road. Our systems are very different, which is okay. which is good because you want to have offensive line scoring systems are different, so you learn different things from them. Yeah, definitely. And so anyway, we, we got our thing. <laughs> you ready for me to move on to Yanda here? Sure, sure. All right. So Yanda uh, had one of his best games of the year, uh, basically the equivalent of one other, but he missed three blocks and didn't have any negative scores. So a, a 99 total after adjustment for Yanda made seven out of seven pulls going left. And he has not been pulling a lot. Most of the Ravens, the Ravens do most of their power running to the right side for a couple different reasons. One is that Orlando Brown is there, who is an earth mover more so than Stanley. And number two is that Yanda's role on the pivot is very important. And so opening that front gate by making sure he can rotate through that hole and hold his block against that defensive tackle is very important. And that's one where uh, where they use Yonder really for that for that role more than they like to get him in motion and depend on Bozeman to hold that same block. So anyway, making, making seven out of seven pulls in this game, a big deal. Um, I thought one of the great things about Yonder in this game was the way he reacted to Lamar saying, hell yeah, <laughs> coach, go <laughs> It's, it, it, Yanda says, if he wants to go for it, I want to go for it. Yeah, that, yeah. At least that's what, he said, yeah, or something first. But yeah. I remember he saying that. But then, because but then, that's all you can really hear. You can't really hear exactly what they're saying. Sure. But that Jonas Schaefer reported it that way. And I'm going, that's two leaders leading exactly the way they should. I mean, obviously, uh, Lamar is leading in terms of, of being the tip of the spear there. And, you know, he knew he was going to run the ball himself. But Yanda's leading because he needs to tell everybody else, yeah, let's get up for this. And, sure. Uh, no, I, I was going to say, Ken, where I, I don't know about you, but it seems almost as if that Yonda's almost taking more of a leadership role this year. I guess with Suggs not being there, I mean, this is a guy that's kind of breaking the huddle a lot during, uh, you know, prior to games. And I mean, to, back to his play, it's it's amazing how steady 
he is. Mm-hmm. It really is at his age and after having the significant injury a couple years ago in 2017. You know, he's 35, 36 years old. He's been in the league since 2007, and he's still such a high-level player. And I don't see how he doesn't end up in Canton one day. I really don't. Right. Well, I, you know, longevity will be a key. You lay out all the guys who are in Canton, and there's a couple things that, that they have in common. They all have very similar total years of performance to Yonda. What they have is they tend to have more Pro Bowls and more All-Pro selections, and that's a function of two things. Number one is the league used to be smaller, so a lot of the guys who played in the 60s and early 70s were competing against less total players to be All-Pro. The second is that Pro Bowl recognition transfers from player to player more because we're living in an era with PFF and weekly offensive line grades available that allows sportscasters to not just be, you know, head up their butt for you know years on end thinking the same yeah. player is the best player in the league uh, five years after it's true. So I think Yanda will benefit from that in the end. And the sports writers of this generation who saw him play and understood how he's graded by PFF and by other other peers of peer systems will realize that, hey, he really was great. And maybe he didn't get all the Pro Bowls or all the pro, all pro nods that all the players before him got. But he, w- he was the best guard of his era by far. Sure, sure. And that that's what it goes to. You know, if you are the best player, you know, of your position, of your era, I, I think that, you know, kind of classifies you as a Hall of Famer in my book. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. All right, let's move on because another guy who had a fantastic game, Orlando Brown here, allowed just one pressure in this game as I have it scored. Um, It's a really terrific game, especially considering a number of his snaps were against Clowney on the outside. And uh, certainly only three missed blocks. One of the things that's true, and and because he's a little ponderous and slow afoot, is that Brown has more trouble making a backside run block of impact than Stanley does. Stanley's much quicker. Get out to level two, level three is necessary. Maybe it's even block a cornerback uh, to, to try and help make a play. Brown doesn't have that kind of mobility to do the same thing. If he doesn't make a block within a few yards of the line of scrimmage, he's probably going L2NB on my score sheet, meaning level two, no block. Mm-hmm. But uh, but anyway, he's uh, uh, he did good in this game to miss only three when, when there were seven poles going in the other direction, I thought. Outstanding game for him. Might be his best game, might be his second best game of the season. Let me just look at this really quickly. And, yeah, it looks like it's basically tied with week one for his best game of the season. And they they needed him to progress. I mean, him entering, you know, last year, obviously, everyone remembers his combine, and that's why I ended up sliding in the draft. But the Ravens taking him in the third round of last year's draft ended up being a huge steal because, you know, he took over uh, halfway through last year, ended up starting the playoff game, got plenty of experience. This year he came in knowing, hey, I'm going to be the starter, even after the whole uh, conditioning test fiasco and Harville kind of, you know, mm-hmm. benched him a little bit here and there. But no, I mean, it's it's it, – you mentioned this earlier where they, they aren't paying a lot of guys. And if you look across the offensive line, they're all extremely young outside of Marshall Yonda. You know, Skura's, you know, uh, on a uh, exclusive rights free agent deal. Orlando Brown's on his rookie deal. Ronnie Stanley's on his rookie deal. You know, four of the five got Bozeman's on his rookie deal. There's so much value in that to have Mm -hmm. such a youthful offensive line that can grow and be cohesive together. You know, uh, the Ravens rarely, uh, I want to say only two times or maybe even less than that in their franchise history, carried over all of their starters from the you know previous mm-hmm. year. Obviously, they didn't do it from last year, this year, but all of these guys were on the team. So, I mean, there's value in that. Right. I, I agree. I, I think the only offensive line the Ravens have had that was potentially better than what they have right now was the 9 line, which mm-hmm. had Orr at right tackle when he was still good as a rookie sure. in his career, went as a ski slope from there downhill yeah, yeah. when he tried to move to left tackle. But uh, they had Jared Gaither at left tackle, who yeah. we hate after the fact. But in 2009, he was a hellacious beater, and he beat the crap out of Vince Wilfork, who was forced to move to the outside in that wild card game due to injury. And mm-hmm. Jared Gaither just ate his lunch in the second <laughs> half of that game. So was, I, I, I love seeing that, and he, he really did have a very fine year, uh, penalized a little bit. But then on the, on the inside, of course, they had Grubbs, Yanda, and Burke, who are – that's the most solid inside you could 
you could ever have. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you talk about all three Pro Bowl guys. I mean, they didn't make the Pro Bowl that year, but all three in their career. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Okay, well, James Hurst came in the game for a couple of plays. He made a really nice block, I thought, on the Lamar touchdown run, the eight-yard touchdown run when they had jumbo formation in. They were uh, 6R, I think, on that play. Uh, yeah, 6R. So they had he, he was lined up on the right side at tight end. Then he came in again a little later, and he's lined up on the left side at tight end, and he took it upon himself to move off the line of scrimmage. And then he and, uh, and another player, it was whoever was the tight end on the other side, were moving at the same time. Well, the truth was that Hurst basically moved from a legal formation to an illegal formation of his own volition. So I gave him the entire charge for that penalty. Uh, if he if he hadn't moved, if the snap had just been made there, that would have been they actually would have been fine. So uh, uh, ashamed to see that, but uh, he's uh, the Ravens seem to have come to terms with who he is, and he'll be a backup now. Uh, I think there's a question as to whether Hurst will be here next year. Well, I was that's kind of what I was going to ask you because obviously they gave James Hurst the four year contract, and they're paying him pretty well, you know, four four and a half million dollars a year. And I'm kind of surprised they haven't used him more as an extra offensive lineman or in an unbalanced line. Or, I mean, I, I feel like they haven't used him enough this season. Would you agree with that? You know, they have such a unbelievable overflow of talented blockers at That's tight true. end between yeah, Ricard and Boyle that they it really is – yeah, You'd rather have the flexibility to have a receiver true. Or, or a fullback. So anyway, uh, but they did. They, they lined up every heavy guy they had on the on the Jackson eight yard touchdown run mm-hmm. effectively across the line. So Boyle, uh, I think Boyle, Hurst, Hurst, James, maybe Andrews was in the game and also uh, Ricard was in the game all on the offensive line. So it was a it was a. It was a power-power oh, yeah. power formation. <laughs> yes, it was. What was that? Nine guys on the uh, nine guys on line for that. Play, yeah, they had actually on that play. You don't see this very often in the NFL, but they actually had had made some of their eligible receivers ineligible by positioning because the the only only the end guys on the line of scrimmage are eligible. Yeah, and so they had extra guys on the end. They they had at least one ineligible receiver among their potentially eligible receivers on that play which you never you never see at the upper level but it was a great great play and uh and work through it just looking at next year there's a cap savings it looks like of two and a half million if they cut Hurst he's going to make four million next year there's a prorated bonus he still has two and a half million a prorated bonus yeah because he's Uh, got two years left on that contract I I don't know. It's going to, it's going to be because the Ravens are projected, obviously, to have over $60 million in cap space. And there's plenty of guys that they could consider. But it, it's, it's an interesting situation because given the money that they're paying, they're not getting that return based on the you know, amount of use that they're uh, using it for. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, uh, you know, they'll probably draft another lineman because they always yeah, draft one. So. By the way, they always draft a corner. And you know when you do that, they're gonna they're gonna have to face the prospect of replacing Marshall Yonda at some point. I still hope he'll play in 2020, but I don't think it's a sure thing. No, uh, no. the fact that he's uninjured so far this year probably helps the chances. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I just don't know where we are for sure. No, it's it's definitely uh, in flux. I mean, the whole situation is, and then obviously, uh, well, Stanley's under contract next year, but it's not. You know, a guarantee. I would think that the Ravens will sign him to an extension. I would be surprised if they wouldn't. But, right. you know, you have some guys, and I believe Skura is a restricted free agent RFA, entering yeah. this uh, offseason. So you got some guys that you don't have a lot of, you know, long term years uh, left, you know, as of right now, even though they are young. Yeah. It's a, it's a, with, with Stanley, I look at it as they have the market friction still available to themselves because Stanley is as good as he is. He's worth franchising. So sure. a lot of times you have a player like Jensen who's a little bit below the line for franchising, so you kind of have to let him walk. But with Stanley, they don't have to do that. And with Suggs, they didn't have to do it. With Nada, they didn't have to do it. They franchised those guys and, and in, in fact, franchised Suggs twice in yep. order to get a deal done. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so so they'll, they'll have the option to do it with Stanley. And I think the market frictions will keep him here long term. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, I, I am too. I mean, it's, it's completely invaluable to have, you know, 
you don't have to worry about left tackle for the next you mm-hmm. know ten years, six, seven years. It's huge. Yeah. I'm just yeah, gonna there really aren't charger real quick. <laughs> you're good. You're yeah, good. Do, do what you got to do. Let me let me move on to the next segment here because we're kind of running a little bit behind. I want to make sure we we get to the mailbag and whatnot. Uh, we talked a little bit about the rushing. We talked a little bit about the great job they had trapping Clowney during the game and 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 coming across the pocket to take care of him. Uh, one thing I want to mention about the offensive line and what they've done though, the offensive line the last fourteen games. The Ravens have rushed for 3,036 yards. That's in 14 Lamar NFL starts. They had, the NFL had a 14-game season for quite a long time, certainly during my youth and until 1977 they had it. And during those years, the, the record for a 14-game season was 3,088 rushing yards by the 1973 Bills who had O.J. Simpson. And uh, they came up only 56 yards short of that in Lamar's first 14 games, despite the fact the game has certainly changed a little bit. Since <laughs> just, a, just a little. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, coming up, they're going to play the Patriots, who are the actually the record holders themselves for a 16-game season at 31-65. So if the, if the Ravens rush for 130 in this next game, they will best that total in Lamar's 15th start. And you said they needed 138 yards? 130. 130. So I, I think it's a you know it's a reasonably good chance that obviously to get behind the Patriots it might not happen but reasonably sure. good chance to get there in uh, in this okay. week next yeah week. definitely I mean considering the average uh, two hundred I mean mm-hmm. that would be seventy yards below their average but I mean that's the thing what we are witnessing is you know kind of history and that's that's the remarkable part of it and of course the big question is how long you know. <laughs> How is this sustainable is the uh, big question. But the thing that's kind of interesting with all of it, with Lamar Jackson and obviously how many rushes he's on pace for, you know, for 170. I mean, he took a couple shots in the Bengals game, I thought. But the thing about Lamar is he's been so much smarter, I feel like, this year with the football in getting out of bounds and diving or sliding and, you know, and obviously Mark Ingram to the rest of the uh, rushing attack, he's been such a, you know, a uh, huge addition for them through free agency that they got. And Gus Edwards has been very steady himself. And we spoke about Justice Hill earlier on, and I'd still like to see him more involved in the offense. But, I mean, their rushing attack, its they can just attack you in so many different ways, and that's what keeps defenses off balance. Yeah, okay. I mean, certainly can get a fresh guy out there by down that is a different running style. I do think most of it is scheme-based. I mean, we, the things you're saying about Ingram and what he's done for the offense are a lot of the same things we were saying about uh, about uh, Edwards last year. His yards after contact right in the middle of the field were just fantastic. And they were great because the, the offensive line got him to level two so often. He broke some tackles at level one, too. But when he broke tackles at level two, it was often a 20-25 yard gain. And those are the ones that really push up that yards after contact number. So, uh, you know, we, we, we got a lot of value from Gus Edwards. And I think I think they are modestly interchangeable that the scheme and the offensive line and, and in particular, Ricard and Boyle are really the key pieces in, in making this work. Definitely. And the Ravens showed you how aggressive they were in uh Keeping Boyle in the fold when they made him, what, the 15th highest paid tight end? And a lot of people kind of raised their eyebrows on that. But he's such a key part of this offense. And if you look at the snap breakdowns, he plays just as much, if not more, than Mark Andrews on a weekly basis. Oh, yeah, he play, he plays more. Um, and, and that was the case down the stretch last year, too. They were really leaning on him a lot more heavily. Andrews is a pass-catching specialist. So when he's in the game, there's a good good chance the ball is going right to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, I mean, I, I, let's see, looking at the snaps this last week, how did this, how did this play out? Uh, but you're, you're right on the money. I just want to make sure we go to this and, and get a chance. Okay. So last week we got 15 snaps out of Ricard. He's really splitting duty now on defense a little bit more than we'd probably like. We got 34 out of Andrews, 40 out of Boyle and Hurst with 27. That's even a high rate for Andrews, frankly, yeah. particularly considering the conditions, uh, relative to the rest of the season. So. Uh, anyway, yeah, the, the tight end group is a very strong one for the Ravens who've been excited to have this. Let's let's talk about some skill position players, and I don't want to hog this. But why, don't, why don't we have you bring up a skill position player you'd like to talk about, and then we'll move on to another. 
Well, geez, I guess a guy that hasn't been in the offense uh, the past couple weeks, I mean, Marquise Brown. (laughs) We talked a lot about Mark Andrews, but Brown, I feel like as much as an impact he made early on, you're kind of feeling the lack of it in his absence. When he Mm -hmm. left in that Steelers game, you know, not too long after the touchdown reception, the offense completely changed. And the big thing with Brown being out is – they really don't have a true deep threat. And yes, I know Miles Boykin got the 50-yarder on the first drive of the Seattle game, but it just seems like their offense is a lot more limited. They really haven't gotten a ton of chunk plays since that Arizona game, quite frankly. And obviously, uh, uh, Brown played a couple games after that. But he, he has vastly outperformed what I thought of him just because... I think wide receiver outside of quarterback, obviously, is probably one of the toughest positions to translate from college to the NFL. Add in the fact that he had the Liz Frank surgery uh, after uh, his season at Oklahoma, missed all of OTAs, minicamp, was limited at the beginning of training camp. You know, my expectations for him were very tempered. But, uh, you know, he, he's proven me wrong. And that's a guy that's just explosiveness, explosive. And I'd like to see them do some more quick hitters to him as well when he gets back, hopefully against New England. Right. The quick, the quick hitters are great. I love to find him in between level two and level three. Sure. Or even in level one if, it, if that needs to be. But, but you know what is even more important to me is the way he drags the defense with him whenever he runs a route through multiple levels. So, sure. you know, he, he – the other receivers around him are afforded all sorts of opportunities behind that because he's a he's just a clear out presence. You you a hockey fan at all, Tim? Eh, not, not really. too much to be honest. Right. Not, well, not a huge hockey guy, but a guy a couple of years ago who was who was you know dominating for the Capitals was Evgeny Kuznetsov, and he yeah. would go behind the net and and the entire defense would follow him, just break their own assignment rules and everything, and just go after him, <laughs> and and uh, and it just created so much opportunity for the Capitals. And I thought this was Brown was doing a lot of the things for the Ravens as well. Uh, you know, he's making room, making space for Boykin. He can make space for himself, too, as he did on the big catch against Arizona, where he kept himself a distance from the sideline and broke to the outside for the football very late to make sure he maintained that extra space from the defender. You know, I'm just very impressed by the by the amount of savvy in his route running for a rookie. It's, a, it's at a different level. And, and, you know, Michael Crawford made the point that the creativity of route running he has is at, at a different level, really. He, he runs a lot of different routes, and Boykin is, is kind of known as a guy who only has about three or four routes that he really likes to run. Yeah, and Boykin, it, it's kind of funny. You know, he was kind of the opposite. Obviously, he was full go during training camp, and he was the guy making waves, making waves. I remember Jamison Hensley tweeted out uh, – I want to say a couple weeks, maybe even a couple preseason games into camp saying he was the most impressive rookie receiver he's ever seen, you know, covering the Ravens. And look, I mean, he only had his one year at Notre Dame, his senior year where he had over 800 yards. But outside of that, didn't have a ton of production. I think a lot of people were expecting this to maybe not be a red shirt year, but a year where he's going to get some seasoning. And I think that's ending up what it's going to be. But, I mean, that just makes Marquise Brown that much more impressive to me, you right. know, doing I, it without the offseason. I'm sorry about that. I, I did want to point out, in the last four games now, so it's really Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Seattle because he wasn't targeted against Pittsburgh. That's actually a bad thing, obviously. But he's had eight targets and made seven catches okay. in those three games. So I'm not saying it's a lot of production, but he's been about at 115 yards on those seven catches. So he's yeah. doing getting the job done. And his catch rate is at an acceptable level where it wasn't in the preseason. He caught like five out of 12 balls or yep. five out of 14 or and something. And drops kind of plagued him then in the preseason yeah. as well. Yeah, it didn't really look like a good bad ball catcher during that preseason, which is something I thought that Lamar needed. Now I'm not so sure he does. But uh, <laughs> but, but he, he made a great bad ball catch, frankly, on the 50. It was a little underthrown. The defender was beaten, but the ball was underthrown for Boykin, which meant he had to kind of you know sit back into the chair and catch the yeah. ball instead of, instead of taking it on the fly, which was a little bit of a shame. But, uh, sure. but he made a good play on the ball, I thought. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And it was funny, and correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously he had the two catches for 55 yards. He had the out, uh, the catch on the out on that drive as well, and then that was it for him, right? 
in the Seattle game. I think yeah, he just he, had the two was, catches on that first drive. Okay, let me go to let me go to it again because I just had it up here for the yeah. receiving during the regular season. Is it one or two? Yeah, two. So two for fifty-five. Two for fifty-five, and I'm looking. Yeah, because he had back-to-back plays. The first and ten, he had the five-yard uh, catch on the out, and then the fifty-yarder. So it was kind of funny, back-to-back plays, and then that was that was it for the game. Yeah, you really would think they would, they'd be able to find a way to use him more. They, he played thirty-two snaps in the game, so he's on the field as much as Moore, who's in there a lot as a run blocker, uh, almost as much as Sneed. You know, basically as much as Andrews, and yet he's getting a lot fewer targets per yeah. snap on the field. So that's it's kind of a shame. I'd like to see him do more. I'd like to see him try and use him more. I'd like to see Lamar trust him a little more to go up and get the ball against single coverage because that's gonna that's gonna be a part of what makes him, you know, a vertical field stretcher is when the other team has to assign two players to him. Sure. I mean, he's got the size. I mean, that's something that Marquise doesn't have, and. uh you know, I think that's going to take time just to develop uh, and get the chemistry with it. But, no, I completely agree that has to be a part of his game, without a doubt. Well, the the, the touchdown against Miami, which I uh, the touchdown of Boykin was a might have been a five-yarder, but Lamar was mm-hmm. drifting backward, threw it off the fadeaway jumper yep. off the back foot. Yep. Um, what was great about that is he saw the backs of both defenders, and he threw it to a then-open spot in the end zone, which meant that, there's no way those two defenders are going to be able to react to that ball. Boykin, yep. who he had eyes on, was the only one who could. And that's the kind of that's the kind of need to see more of. You see single coverage with the back to the defender. Go ahead and put the ball up. Yeah, Boykin will get the ball open. more off than not. He's going to get some pass interference calls. And hopefully, even if the other guy, even if the defender, you know, is able to see the football, Boykin can become a defender at that point and hopefully not be useless. So I, I'm just I'd like to take more chances. No, I, I completely agree. I think you got to get him more involved in the offense. You got to get another wide receiver in general more involved with the offense. I was a huge Willie Sneed guy last year, and uh, you know he definitely hasn't been able to get the same rhythm because he seemed like he was one of Lamar's go-to guys. Him and Mark Andrews, frankly, at the end of last season, but. This year, you know, it just hasn't worked. He's had a couple drops. He had only the one target against Seattle, which ended up being a drop. But, you know, I thought he was big for him last year. I mean, converting so many third downs. He had over 600 yards receiving. I believe he led the team in receptions. Um, They just need to find more uh, production out of, you know, another receiver not named Marquise Brown. Right. Uh, In in, in 2018, in all fairness, well, I don't know if it's all fairness, but – Jackson really did, wasn't good for any receiver. Sneed's production yeah. dropped way off in that second half uh, with Jackson, even though he hit him five or eight times in the Cincinnati game. But but he he everybody's production dropped off. The yeah. only guy who really produced more was Andrews. Andrews. A- yeah. And ask John Brown. I mean, and I'm, I'm no, glad John, John Brown <laughs> <laughs> disappeared <laughs> in the second. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I, by the way, really nice to see that John Brown is playing well at Buffalo. That affects the Ravens' compensatory formula very significantly. But he had 28 catches, I think, going into this last week. So it's uh, at least that fourth-round pick is not at jeopardy. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And it's good that C.J. Mosley is back on the field, help him get that back yeah. to a third-rounder. Yeah, I hope, I hope that works out that way uh, in the end. I also hope C.J. plays pretty well, sure. except against us. Yeah, yeah. Let's be clear, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Go back to Lamar Jackson a little bit. I, I kind of skipped over some of the discussion of him. Anything you saw in this game in terms of growth progression you'd like to start with? Well, uh, it was an interesting game for Lamar. I mean, obviously, if you just look at the stat line purely, you're not nine of 20. You think, oh, geez, you know, under 50 percent, you know, 45 percent completion percentage. But you mentioned the Andrews drops. He had three possibly four it was kind of a low ball and then the one the sneed so really you're looking at you know four or five more completions there and then you're looking at 13 to 20 14 to 20 which is a lot more acceptable but Lamar took over that game you know especially on that fourth quarter drive where they went nine minutes you know he had that big 30 yard run even on the touchdown drive to set up the fourth and two on the third and 15, he had a 13-yard scramble to even make that a decision. And then to run the QB power on the very next play, score the touchdown. And you mentioned this earlier, you know, the conversation with Harbaugh and Yonda to even, hey, we need to go for it. Hell yeah, I want to go for it. You know, you just see him 
And and we brought this up too with the the play with Skura, the delay game, you know, spiking them. That was the most animated, you know, mm-hmm. you've seen Lamar Jackson during a football game and after the touchdown on the fourth and two, you know, getting up, spiking the ball, you know, kind of going towards the crowd. You know, this is becoming as if it maybe wasn't already, but it probably was, you know, this is his football team, you know, despite only being 22 years old, this is his football team. And he's really taking on the role of a leader and he's taking over these games and, and, that's what's impressive. It wasn't the prettiest game by any means. I mean, just talking about the stats, but when you needed him to make a play, he made a play in those crucial moments. Yeah, he's he's definitely a, a personal phenomenon in so many ways. And it's everything this year. It's I mean, obviously his play on the field, the five touchdown passes is completely different, but it's also the going up and picking up the camera woman on the sidelines. I mean, that's so <laughs> endearing to the to the general population and whatnot. You know, it's the it's the animation on the sidelines. I don't know how many times I watched that on Twitter today, but it had to be at least ten. I, I mean I, I you oh, know, yeah. hell yeah, let's go for it, Coach. Yeah, hell yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, it was it was a cool moment. And, you know, if the you know season keeps trending in that direction, you're looking at, you know, this game. I don't want to say a turning point, but that one of the biggest moments of the season for sure. You know, them going for it on that fourth down because it was such a big turning point in the game to go up seven. Yeah, huge, huge play. Clearly, obviously, fourth and two, you leave them down there. You don't really feel like the, the entire field is safe from, you know, 90 yards or whatever it would have been, would have been safe for uh, against Wilson. Uh, you know, Wilson had one turnover at that point in the game, but you got to figure, you know, he's he's uh, he certainly did not trust the Ravens to play good four-down football against Wilson. Let's put it that way, because you don't want to get into a one-score game when Russell Wilson has four downs to, and the football to work with you. So, no. yeah, and, and def- even more, not a one-score game, you don't want to get a three-point lead under those circumstances. <laughs> yes. position. No, I I completely agree. And I was saying to Brent, you know, kind of conversely, when, uh, you know, the Seahawks ended up missing that 53-yard field goal, you know, it was a fourth and three. And I was saying to Brent, I was like, should have gone. I I thought so, too. I thought given the the weather and just the circumstances, I said to Brent, I was like, I would have went for it in that situation. Because then, you know, you turn around, the Ravens get the ball at the 46-yard line, and then they end up getting that touchdown. Yeah, it's a, it's a you know it was a it was probably about a fifty percent chance to make that field goal, and I'm being yeah. maybe even a little generous on that one. Yeah, uh, and, and you know in the in the slop, all the, so many things can go wrong with the hold in the in that situation or the snap itself. Uh, you know the slippery slippery footing of the kicker. I mean, it was it was I thought it was a really terrible analytic decision, frankly, to not go for it in that in that situation. But uh, I, I completely agree with you. I can, I, 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 was, I was saying it when it happened. I'm just listening to your Tim, and here's something I'm picking up on: is whenever we talk about things, and it's nine of twenty, that's forty-five percent. It's like you're you're immediately attracted to math in your head, and since I'm, I, I have this affliction personally, where you can't almost give me two numbers, and I don't want to multiply or divide them automatically. <laughs> I'm seeing that in you too, a and, little and bit. That, yeah, and that probably means that you you appreciate some of the math of the game in terms of going forward on fourth down, going forward on two point conversions and whatnot. So I just, I'm just guessing from this. From oh, this well, it's, uh, it's interesting because when we were doing the post game after the Kansas city, it depends on the situation with analytics. And we could do a whole podcast on this, to be honest, analytics and football, because look, it's coming and it's here and it's been in baseball for a while. And obviously it's great, but, at some point, you have to have a feel of the game. And even though I agree with you, the analytics probably pointed towards them to not have Myers attempt that 53-yarder. But just the feel of the game and just, you know, the weather and just the circumstances, I, I just would have went for it in that situation. It was a defensive game at that point. The Ravens had yet to score a touchdown offensively up until that point. I, I would have rolled the dice. Go with it. Go for it on fourth down. You got the MVP leading candidate and you're entering that game. I mean, I, I would have went for it. I really would. If I'm in the position of the Seattle coach and I'm on the headset, I, I demand to have a guy on that headset who te- was able to tell me the following thing. What's my the percentage chance I need to make that field goal to make this a break even proposition? 
Sure. And then I can try and decide if it makes sense for me to go for it or not. And and I just I, I want to have that guy available to me. And it's just it was a horrible decision. It was just one of the worst decisions I've seen in a while in terms of of, uh, uh, you know, game management to go ahead and try and kick that ball as opposed to just going for the first down there. And what's so interesting is, you know, the very next possession, you have the fourth and two with Harbaugh, and then they were going to kick timeout, then they end up going for it. So you see the opposite ends of the spectrum, yep. literally a drive difference, which is kind of really fascinating when you think about it. Right. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I'd love to hear what analytics would say about this, what, what some of the people who have good win probability models would say. But I, I'm, I'm thinking it might have been as much as about fourth and five to fourth and six. It still would have been the right move to go for it on fourth down instead of kick that field goal. Uh, it's, it's a you, you gain so much by advancing that football, gaining a first down, getting a better chance to make the field goal as a, as a consolation trophy to potentially getting a touchdown. You know, it's just there, there was so much at stake on that kick that they uh, they really made, I think, a very poor decision. Anyway, we've beaten that horse to death, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. uh, a couple of things about Lamar I wanted to point out. Uh, Seattle did play lots of zone against him. They used a four-man pass rush on 18 of 21 dropbacks, which created a very easy situation for the offensive line for a lot of the game. And we, we already went over some of the good pass blocking numbers, but Seattle definitely did not have the dogs going. What it did mean is, though, in zone defense is they had their eyes on Lamar and they had their eyes on the football. And Lamar really, I think, had an amazing game running given all the eyes that were on him all game with the with the zone coverage. And, and that was it's even more special under those circumstances that he was able to do what he did and uh, basically fake people out of their shoes left and right all over while he was slipping himself. So uh, impressive game. I mean, I thought it was very telling just seeing all the post-game comments from all the Seahawks defenders, you know, Jadavion Clowney saying, I, I wanted to play Vic, but, you know, now I played uh, Lamar Jackson and, uh, what was it? Bobby Wagner was saying he's, you know, way faster than I thought he was. I mean, just uh, there were probably three or four defenders just gushing over Lamar Jackson's athleticism. And you saw Marcus Peters, you know, who's obviously a new addition, just practiced for the first time last Thursday. Him saying, look, I, I don't know how you can stop him. I don't know how you can slow him down. So this is a guy getting his first, you know, fresh eyes on Lamar. And, you know, it's one of those things where, and I believe uh, Pete Carroll said it. Same thing. It's mm-hmm. like he's a lot faster than he is on tape. You know, in person, it's you, you don't believe it until you see it live. Yeah, it's just it certainly did everything in that game that we hope will Lamar Jackson will do. I, I, one thing that happened in this game that was inverted was that he had more yards, average air yards on his completions. Uh, than his average air yards per throw, which means he completed a higher percentage of his long passes than his shorts. And I think there were two things that went into that. One is there were there were some drops on short passes. So Andrews dropped a couple of balls. There was a ball low. Uh, and that ball low is a recurring problem for Jackson. There might have been two in this game because I'm thinking of one to Roberts as well. Uh, I think it was Hayden Hurst. A low ball to Hurst. Yeah, I think it, it might, might be the, the one I'm thinking too. of. May, there may have been three even, but but the, yeah. but the thing is a recurring problem. We saw this in Carolina last year when he had a wide open receiver at short distance, and he tends to short arm the ball. Bruce Arians calls that trying to hand the ball to the receiver. You know, he's ten yards away. Just throw the ball normally, and and <laughs> and, it, and, it, and you know, you he's so used to altering his arm angle or doing just you know twelve to six or whatever your normal throwing motion is. Go ahead and whip it in there. He'll catch it, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, anyway, it, uh, it was a shame to see that, and I think it did cost him a couple completions, maybe even three in this game, uh, given how open people were. No, I'm with you, and we, we were talking about this all offseason, and we had on uh, you know Dan Orlovsky several times, and I thought he put, put it best, saying, with Lamar, you just want him to hit the layups. And mm-hmm. it's these easy passes. And look, he's still completing over 63% of his passes. You know, he's up 5% over last year. He's done a lot better from last year to this year. But there's still room for improvement. And mm-hmm. you were just illustrating that with those throws. You know, just hit the layups. You know, if they're that wide open, you know, you don't have to make it difficult throwing it you know, at them at their shoes. You know, just hit them in the chest. Make it nice, nice and easy. You don't need to make the perfect throw. You know, just hit the layups. There you go. Tim, we appreciate having you on. Let's stick around and do a couple mailbag questions. Sure. And uh, Josh, what do you got for us this week? All right. A little bit of uh, 
a little bit of mailbag here. Let's get into this. Um, I guess some of this came on the fact that uh, the Patriots picked up Bethel today. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the question coming in from Minion Hunter is, can you please comment on Belichick stealing the rotation of defensive players, especially he's, in the uh, secondary that Wink pioneered last year in his defense this year? Okay, so I think he's talking about something else, and I want to have him on to do All a right. special film study short. But what he's basically talking about is when you have a four-to-make-three four to rotation at cornerback, how you manage that. And, and obviously gotcha. the Ravens are going to face this with Jimmy Smith coming back and definitely a worthwhile discussion to have prior to week nine. So Minion Hunter, we're, I'll be, uh, I'll be contacting you about a film study short on that one, but it's, it's, right. it's going to take more time than we have on this episode. All right. Wait, gotcha. you want to discuss Bethel quickly? I do. And Garnett gets to that with his question about why does it seem like other teams can pull out the best players uh, from our former players while we can't get them to produce. Is it a coaching error or an improper scheme fit? I think this might be a question for the Orioles, but... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, I want to comment on just the way Justin Bethel was picked up. Bethel did not have to be cut at the moment he was. In fact, he, the, the Ravens could have waited till after the Week 9 game, cut him then, and still gotten their comp pick back. I think as a favor to him, they allowed him to go a little early, find a new team. You know, He's, he's going to get paid for the full season from the Ravens anyway, if the Ravens were to get some form of cap relief from what he does, they don't get it until next year anyway, so they can't use it on another player this year. So anyway, it didn't it didn't make sense to me, and the Ravens really, in my mind, should have anticipated the possibility of Bethel going to the Patriots because they've done it before. They did it with Patrick Burgess. I'm not sure who else they might have done it with against the Ravens over the years, but I know they've done it with other teams' players as well. Now uh- – no. Go ahead, Ken. Oh, I, I was, I was just going to say, Ken, no, I, I agree with you. I, 100%, I think this was done out of a courtesy for Bethel since it's the bye week. But like you said, it ends up backfiring. I see it from both sides. I mean, I saw some reaction on Twitter today. Saying, oh, they should have kept him. They should have kept him. But it's it's tough. I mean, the Ravens have obviously over the years picked up some nice fourth-round picks. So uh, in, uh, in the fourth round, I mean, so – Obviously, you're always kind of thinking with the future in mind. It hurts in the now, but, you know, if they end up hitting a Zadarius Smith who they took in the fourth round with that compensatory pick, then it's all worth it. So it's it's kind of tough. I see it from both sides. Yeah, I mean, even if it's a die roll and you get sure. Zadarius Smith or Tavon Young on a one or a two, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're jumping on that chance to take that role instead of keeping Bethel for another – what would it be the rest of this season? I guess is nine games, and then it'd be twenty-five Next games. Year, yeah. You get to keep them. It's just, you know, it's the, the sad part of the NFL is that that there's no kick coverage player, even the best, who's all that valuable because they don't contribute to down and distance exchanges. And down and distance exchanges are where NFL games are decided on on the possessions. It's all the all the basically that the kick coverage guy does is change your starting field position by a few yards. And a good one is only going to change your starting field position by an average of a little bit. Now, it'd be hard to say that the Ravens benefited from Justin, Justin Bethel's greatness when they just gave up a touchdown. Obviously, it probably wasn't his fault. I, I haven't really analyzed it. But uh, but it is, it's is—it's—it's a case where it's very hard for one player to make that much of a difference. No, I, I agree. I agree 100%. All right. Um Brad is wondering, uh, is saying it's nice to see some runs to the left with Yonda Poulin this week. Uh, much has been said about the Ravens' proclivity to run right. Any idea if it's common across the league that a team runs so heavy to one side of the line? I think most teams tend to be right-handed, and they, they go there for a couple reasons. They go there because the right tackle tends to be a beefier road grader, and the left tackle tends to be a feet guy. Uh, it's also more common that your, your your right guard is a more physical guy and your left guard is a more mobile guy. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of things like that that really make most teams right-handed in nature. All right. Simple answer. Um, the Ravens signed Damone Harris to the practice squad today. Is that a guy that we'll even see come up? Is it a placeholder on the practice squad, or how does he fit into the – Plans. You know, interesting guy. Uh, he, he's a he's a defensive end, kind of a, a, a I think he's about six four, two sixty kind of guy. 
I think he could end up uh, on the team. It's possible. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's on the practice squad now, and, you know, there's always a possibility of additional injuries. They let Ledbetter go to, to make room for him effectively. I don't know if you guys saw it. Did you see it on online, Tim, the story about him coming back from London, <laughs> losing the wedding ring, all that stuff? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It was a crazy story. I was I was just reading that, like, not too long before uh, we started the podcast. Yeah. It, it, you almost kind of root for the guy now, right? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I saw the thing. And it was like two pages of stuff on his phone. And then I'm like, where's the rest of the story? I need to hear what happened. <laughs> Don't leave a second. Okay. Well, that's saying, Tim, we, we really appreciate you coming on. Love, love to have you again sometime. And, sure. Uh, Sure, we'll we'll uh, talk to each other kicking around on 105.7 from time to time, and uh, uh, really appreciate you making time. Oh, definitely, Ken. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, and Ken, uh, articles up on filmstudybaltimore.com? They are. So the, the offensive line scoring is not up, so people have a chance to, to listen to this podcast first, hopefully get a few more subscribers. The, the offensive line article will be up tomorrow afternoon probably. All right, and then no, know your foe episode this week because it's the bye week. So what's the plan? Uh, so the plan is we have uh, Brian McFarland joining us for two separate episodes, and we'll be talking about the offense and the defense separately in terms of roster evaluation at midseason. And a lot of this goes to what Tim was talking about earlier about having young players who are contributing as starters and the extra value that provides. But it's value relative to cap is what we'll be examining. All right, great. Nose will be out next week to kind of fill your void. And I'm sure we'll have a Know Your Foe next week to get ready for the big Patriots game. Yes, we will. Thank you. So, All right, guys. Well, have a good night. Tim, you got, you got anything you want to plug? Anything coming up that, that we ought to be talking about? Um, I guess just make sure to tune in to Baltimore Game Day Uncensored post game after uh, every Ravens game. And then um, also Vinny and Haney. <laughs> Vinny and Haney, 10 to 2, Monday through Friday. I'll see you, Tim. Thanks so much for coming on. All right. Thanks thanks. again, Ken. See you guys. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's List of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.